0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Big Picture Podcast brought to you by Iron Pillar. I am, as always, your host, uh, partner, and co-founder of Iron Pillar, a venture growth fund uh, investing in companies that are building from India for the world. And in that context, it is my absolute pleasure uh, to welcome to the show um, a relatively recent entry into our portfolio, uh, Mr. Nitin Jayakrishnan, who is the co-founder and CEO of Pando, a leading logistics SaaS company uh, based out of uh, both India and uh, the US. So welcome to the show, Nitin. Great to be here, Monjit.
1: Thanks for having me. I've uh, uh, been a fan of, uh, uh, you know, your uh, uh, jollies volley uh, for a long time. Hopefully there
0: aren't any volleys today, Uh but good, good to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So as I do every time, I'm going to ask you, Nathan, to sort of uh, quickly take us through your journey, right? Your upbringing, and eventually what got you to uh, founding or co-founding uh, Pando. So take sure. us take us through your, through your life.
1: Sure, um, you know, born and brought up in Chennai, uh, uh, you know, fairly typical sort of middle-class uh, South Indian Tamil Brahmin family. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, most of, uh, Uh, My family still is uh, to a large part my, uh, to my grandfather's time, everybody around uh, the family were uh, school teachers. uh, So government school teachers. Um, So, you know, when I was born uh, I still sort of remember uh, it was a one bedroom apartment where a uh, joint family uh, sort of lived uh, in a fairly n- not very affluent part of town in Chennai. Uh, and uh, my father was a first generation entrepreneur. Uh, he was a chartered accountant uh, and sort of, you know, that he was starting up on his own was. Uh, uh, but, you know, against sort of the the typical sort of uh, you know uh, uh, what what the family would do, and against uh, sort of the parents' wishes and all of that, uh, you know. And he apparently had a a job uh, to be in the finance uh, team of SRF, which was a a leading. Uh, Uh, You know, Indian uh, conglomerate in Delhi, um, and uh, he decided instead to start a publishing house um, around uh, six months before I was born. And so the wife was pregnant and my mother was pregnant and uh, he decided to start a business. and so it was a fairly uh, controversial around the time within the family because nobody had sort of done it. Um, but it sort of allowed me and my brothers, uh, two of them, a fairly sort of atypical upbringing in retrospect. Um, I remember uh, sort of my parents always telling us uh, uh, sort of you know, a combination of uh, ambition, hard work, and resourcefulness was sort of uh, just the nature of the beast, if you will. Uh, we've always taught... Uh, to sort of aim very high. They were never impressed with anything uh, really, and never always taught to sort of aim very high and then figure out what it takes to get there and then figure out how to get it done. Uh, and it was always like sort of very, you know, really even home life was very entrepreneurial. Um, I remember, uh, you know, we used to, the family used to really enjoy sort of classical Indian music. And so we'd uh, go about an hour from where we lived uh, into another part of town, a slightly more affluent part of town uh, to sort of get back row tickets uh, to, you know, some of these concerts. And And I would go with my grandparents and my parents and such. And somewhere, uh, I think, should be around, uh, you know, seventh grade or eighth grade or so. And, uh, you know, my grandfather one day says, you know, we've been sort of traveling all the way there to sort of do these things. And nothing happens around our part of town. Why don't we organize something? Um, And so my grandfather and I sort of teamed up together and uh, said, hey, you know, we'd we'd raise capital uh, sort of sponsorships from local businesses Uh, and sort of put together a cultural academy, as we called it, which would basically invite artists from all over India to sort of perform for the local audience. Um, And I was sort of in charge of uh, bringing artists uh, to come and perform in our part of town. And it was bizarre Mm -hmm. because, I mean, I obviously sounded like a child and I was calling, you know, uh, uh, people like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Panditra Vishankar and, uh, uh, you know, people like uh, Panditra Zakir Hussain and, uh, you know, the violin maestros, Ganesh and Kumaresh et cetera, saying, hey, you know, and, and I had sort of tried to make up this like slightly deeper baritone and uh, sort of invite them into into these concerts. And of course, I mean, they obviously knew what was going on and that I was a child, especially after they turned up to one of our concerts, et cetera. We did it for almost 10 years. Um, uh, consecutively every year Um, and you know many years later uh, when I met one of them uh, when I was in college in Singapore they said aren't you that child from Williwakam in Chennai and I said oh shit I thought I'd sort of you know conned everybody into believing I was uh, I was running this big institution but really I think uh, uh, you know even back then sort of uh, uh, resources whether that was capital age experience etc was not was not seen or you know made to be too much of a constraint um, and we were just sort of told to, uh, you know, go figure it out. And so we've done all sorts of things. I mean, thrown uh, newspapers, um, sold classified ads, sold abacus tools in Madras Book Fair, uh, etc. just, just sort of in the hustle of sort of, um, a family that was sort of going from a one bedroom apartment into sort of scraping through months and then figuring out what life uh, was, uh, entrepreneurially, which, uh, without, without a sort of monthly salary coming into, uh, the fray, but that was sort of my upbringing. Um, and then, um, Uh, Went to, uh, uh, did fairly well in school, uh, went to college, uh, decided to, my father was a child accountant, I wanted to do law, um, and so was sort of studying for the common law entrance exam uh, in uh, admission test CLAT in India, but uh, somewhere along the way decided I wanted to study economics and finance. and so uh, uh went to singapore uh to the singapore management university studied econ finance um, and then to uh, nyu uh, to stern where again i studied finance um and it, sort of i suppose the inverse of um, I was always excited by tech um, uh, and uh, excited by sort of building things um and and sort of talking to users and customers and sort of figuring out um uh, you know what uh, you know problems to solve really uh, but uh, you know uh, an econ finance sort of education doesn't yield itself very well to uh, uh, to any of that uh, 100% of my cohort in you know both both universities went on to either consulting or finance uh, and 90 95% of them still stay in uh, consulting finance or or private equity um um, got very excited by tech along the way. Uh, one of my professors decided to uh, move from NYU to uh, across the pond to uh, uh, the UK, uh, where um, uh, both industry and academia together were setting up a uh, what was at the time uh, the Europe's only and first autonomous vehicle laboratory uh, between Oxford, Cambridge and the University of Warwick. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it was sort of a fairly cross-functional team. Uh, if you would, uh, they had, uh, you know, economists, they had finance folks, they had, um, you know, equity valuation professors, they had, uh, uh, you know uh, automotive engineers they have user experience engineers uh material scientists etc all sort of put together in a in in what felt like a startup really uh in retrospect um and they were sort of put into uh you know verticals for different use cases and so uh the particular use case that my professor went into was um was um how uh, global freight or material movement would be in, uh, would be influenced and impacted by autonomous vehicle technology. Um, what sort of is colloquially called driverless cars. Um, or driverless, uh, you know, vehicles, etc. And uh, there was obviously a lot of sort of uh, VC and technology interest, Silicon Valley interest uh, in the in the space around, uh, you know, Uber for uh, freight and around uh, sort of, uh, you know, how in de- two different degrees, uh, autonomous vehicle technology would would um, would impact uh, the space. And so, really, uh, uh, spent two years as a researcher also getting a master's degree, um, uh, you know, talking to users, customers, talking to industry folks, figuring out uh, sort of where in the state of tech uh, was industry ready for it, where in the state of the world uh, was were the consumers uh, in, in terms of readiness for uh, technology, et cetera, but really used university money to uh, travel the world uh, and, and uh, uh, understand the space. And that was sort of my first exposure to freight and supply chain and logistics. Um, right out of there, um, Uh, along with uh, Abhijit, who's now my co-founder at uh, Pando, but also another gentleman uh, who was was a a childhood friend uh, who was also graduating from Yale at the time. The three of us decided to get together and start a freight tech startup, uh, which was also in sort of logistics tech, uh, supply chain tech, Uh, but sort of on the supply side, um, similar to what in India, BlackBuck, Rivigo, delivery, et cetera, um, mm-hmm. uh, did, and in the US, Flexport, Convoy, et cetera, were doing in Europe, Zender and others were doing. It was a marketplace for uh, for freight, um, both domestic and international. Uh, we read a fairly sizable order book, um, but somewhere along the way, um, it felt like every time we'd go to a customer and call ourselves a digital freight brokerage, uh, the freight brokerage part of the uh, moniker seemed um, like sort of commoditized. And they said, okay, I mean, I'll give you a vendor code. Just And these are large customers, p and J&J, Nestle, et cetera. Um, And they'd say, okay, you know, get registered, we'll give you uh, a few loads, see if you can fulfill it. If not, that's fine, but tell me more about the digital. Um, My uh, GT Nexus, uh, you know, uh, uh, transport management system doesn't do these two things. Can you help me uh, augment that? Hey, my Oracle uh, warehouse management system doesn't do these two things. Can you augment that? Uh, Hey, you know, my systems are more for myself, but I want it to be collaborative with my carriers like you, uh, my customers and my suppliers to whom you deliver or. up from can you help me build those networks around my existing systems of record etc which got us very excited um, around around what the potential for this could be uh, and then subsequently uh you know we decided to uh you know uh, pivot uh you know really uh, sell the order book to another 3pl um, you know, take December off. This happened in November. Take December off, uh, and on January first in 2018, we started uh, Pando, uh, which was really trying to solve the same problem, but from the lens of uh, building a global software as a service uh, business um, that sort of infused uh, that was at the intersection of supply chain and AI. Uh, and the intention was, hey, you know, it seemed like uh, you know, really, uh, and the word for it, I said this in 2017, 18, and it seemed like to others listening to it seemed like you know I was being too harsh, but it's I still feel the same way. I think it's criminal that some of the world's largest brands, the brands that you and I live with and love, uh, for them to keep their promises to us, for them to deliver on those promises to us, uh, which is really the promise of the brand, the supply chain and the delivery and the fulfillment ecosystem is really the foundation of that entire experience. And so uh, really, and we saw the worst of it during COVID, um, And something, you know, before around the time, the Suez Canal crisis or, you know, the chip shortage, et cetera. But really in the last five years, we've seen the worst of supply chain crises. Um, But, you know, even we started Pando just before that. And we've been saying this, uh, you know, even back then, the brands that we love and live with, for them to keep their promises to us, fulfillment and supply chain technology is the foundation. And it's criminal that uh, most of these companies use technology that was built before the year 2000. Um, and so it felt like, hey, technology has drastically improved, supply chains have drastically changed. And for the next 20 years, you know, there ought to be great tech, great capital, and great minds sort of working on the problem itself, which is really why
0: we started Pando. That's incredible. But what's, what's interesting to me is uh, it was actually bits and pieces from your last venture where there were gaps in the overall toolkit, if you will, uh, around supply chain that triggered the thought process for what eventually became panda which is which is great so always have customers sort of giving you ideas of what um, you know what the gaps are in the market uh, which is which is the ideal way to actually you know launch a launch a company it's a problem looking to be solved rather than a solution looking for looking for a problem all right so so that's that's amazing uh, you know moving moving to sort of you, you started back in, in, uh, in, in 2018, uh, five and a half, almost six years uh, into it, you know, I guess, uh, you know, talk about how you eventually or initially found product market fit, right? Um, now the team was sitting in, in, in Chennai, but eventually you were able to actually sell, um, uh, you know, sell the product or the solution to, to customers really globally, including, including the U S so talk about, Sort of the initial phase of building Pando, uh, figuring out sort of the product and the product market fit, and then eventually we'll also talk about the GTM and how did you uh, you know get those initial customers.
1: Um, you know, Pando and maybe a, a good way to sort of do this is is a bit in retrospect, uh, and, and uh, you know this, but you know for those watching, Pando is is an American corporation with global customers. Uh, we sell to large Fortune five hundred brands like Procter Gamble, Johnson and Johnson, Nestle, Cummins, Siemens, Castrol, Danaher, etc. Um, uh, and you know the the thought process uh, always has actually has-
0: let me let me stop you because I didn't ask the question I should have asked at the very beginning is explain to the audience what is it that pando does pando essentially
1: is a software as a service business that uh, helps uh, uh, large uh, and medium now more and more large and medium uh, fortune 500 to fortune 2000 manufacturers distributors and retailers um, manage their global supply chains and so um, think about uh, uh, you know any global business as having uh, you know three key elements to their uh, overall business, the factories that make things, the suppliers that supply the raw materials and then customers or you know ch- through different channels, customers that consume whatever is made by these factories. Um, and of course retail does not have the factory element uh, and manufacturers might not own the retail bucket, but really you know the the overall supplier to consumer sort of cycle looks like that. Um, and what Pando essentially uh, uh, started out with a vision to to do is, hey, I mean, uh, from the factory to the supplier, you're ordering materials that need to be in turn delivered to the factory, uh, and then you know customers are ordering materials that in turn need to be uh, fulfilled from factory through warehouses, distributors, retailers, and to the end consumer. Um, and ultimately, this is a virtuous cycle uh, where you know it's demand on one hand, supply on the other, and demand and supply are meeting through a network of different channels. Um, were sort of uh, three sort of key elements that we wanted to bring together through software. Uh, one was hey, you know, this is a network, and so it's a multi-party game. Uh, but we found in the market that most of the solutions that were there were sort of siloed and uni-party or single-party, right? And so these were systems of record, not systems of engagement. And so we wanted to sort of make this connected, interconnected, and network in a way that technology was yielding itself to become through cloud and through uh, mobile and the internet and so on, right? Uh, so that was the first sort of big theme. The second big theme was intelligence. Um, and uh, the ultimately supply chain, like anything anything else in the enterprise or really anything else in the world today, is a data game. Right. And so uh, what eventually happens is when you order something that data sort of dies. Uh, when you fulfill something, that data dies. All of these, because you know, it's compounded by the fact that uh, these are siloed technology solutions. Sometimes there's no tech for one particular process in this, in this whole game, uh, that you know, it's not captured digitally, et cetera, as well. And so uh, because of the data problem, and also because it's not the data is not leveraged for intelligence, um, you're not able to sort of leverage every transaction in this flow to make the overall experience better. Uh, and so intelligence was sort of the second big theme, uh, theme. uh Network was the first or system of engagement was the first and system of intelligence was the second. Um, and the third sort of big uh, theme uh, for us was, you know, uh, the idea that, uh, you know, in, in supply chains, I think, uh, you know, there is, there is a fairly wide, uh, if you're a hundred million dollar company, um, you sort of solve a set of problems that you can manage to solve without you can throw people at the problem, uh, right? You don't necessarily need complex tech. You don't need uh, large implementations, et cetera. The minute you sort of cross the 250 $300 dollars in revenue sort of uh, threshold as a manufacturer distributor or a retailer it becomes too complex to just solve it with with by throwing people right of course uh, you know depending on where in the world you are and what the labor market is like um you might be able to get away with it till maybe about 750 800 a billion dollars even uh, if you're in some parts of asia but in most parts of the the western world um you know you're not going to be able to sort of get through even you know 500 million dollars of revenue without solid tech at the at the foundation. And a lot of that tech was very, very old. The supply chain problem is not new. Uh, Supply chain software as a a category is not new, obviously, but a lot of that tech was very old. And so uh, the third sort of big theme was how do we leverage uh, modern technology stacks, both from you know the software as well as hardware stacks, to be and and really the data that's available outside uh, you know just uh, regular enterprises and their existing technologies uh, to be able to sort of modernize the supply chain uh, realm, right. So that's sort of what we do. Um, we started in India. Going back to your previous question of uh, sort of how we started and uh, where how we are scaling. Um, so there are some things you know I, I, we keep saying at pando that uh, we, we've sort of had a, a three year one year journey um, and uh, you know uh, and then a, 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 almost a two year second year journey if you will right uh, and a large part of that was uh, because we decided to sort of set our ambition um, on selling to the large enterprise segment on day one um, and the usual potentially, and I sort of am, am treading on, on thin ice here, but potentially the easier path uh, might have been to sort of sell to small enterprises uh, and then sort of graduate to the mid-market, graduate to the upper mid-market, then to the enterprise, then to the Fortune 500. Um, but with Pando, what we actually said was, hey, can we sell to the Fortune 500 on day one? And mm-hmm. in turn translated to what is the kind of product that I have to build where a Fortune 500 company will pay $100,000 in ARR and sign a five-year contract with a lock-in um, is how we started the product development journey. And so uh, it was, it was a it was a bit of a stretch on day one for a company. Uh, And I forget it wasn't even a company back then, right? It was for two founders that did not have enterprise software background or supply chain technology background or supply chain background itself. Um, But, but what that sort of, uh, you know, benchmark allowed us to do uh, was it, it while it took some capital and it took some time, it allowed us to sort of build a product wherewithal and a product breadth that allowed us to sort of, Uh, be able to, one, be confident and then also be confident in delivering, uh, confident in making a promise, but also be able to uh, be confident in delivering that promise to the very large enterprise. Um, And so uh, while we did start uh, from India, we sold to global enterprises from day one. Uh, Philips was our first customer. We sold to you know, uh, Castrol to uh, British Petroleum, Castrol to, um, you know, Cummins to Siemens, et cetera, uh, very early in our journey. And, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of, um, in in some sense, uh, you know, if you sort of translate that to, uh, you know, the context of where India is uh, in, in its evolution as a SaaS market, um, you know, we are, uh, in, there are very few companies today that are venture-backed, enterprise-focused SaaS businesses, from India for the world, um, and so in in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we were sort of uh, part of that early cohort of companies that, uh, and there are a few giants ahead of us that we learn from and get inspired by every day, but really part of that, you know, potentially single digit group of companies. Um, and and no more than early double-digit group of companies definitely that were writing the playbook on each function, right? And so we were writing the playbook on how you'd market, writing the playbook on how you'd sell. uh, What does it mean from a talent perspective? How do you leverage? At at what stage do you sort of uh, hive off professional services externally to partners? Each of these decisions were different for a Valley company vis-a-vis a a cross-border company like uh, Pando. Um, And so uh, we took our time to sort of, figure that out, digest it and and be able to sort of say that, yes, you know, the product, the problem is a fit, the channel, the product is a fit. The you know repeatability of the sales process is a fit. The repeatability of the delivery process is a fit. That took us about three and a half uh, years approximately. We had very patient investors um, and and phenomenal board members that really sort of both had the foresight but also had the the appetite to be able to sort of support and nurture a business through those early days. Um. Mm-hmm. But then subsequently, also had the uh, foresight and and the appetite to say you know now let's let's uh, look at the largest market that uh, you know we should be looking. At, which is North America, and then about two years back, decided to focus on the US um, and a whole bunch of things that are similar. And uh, because we built that early muscle selling to large enterprises from India um, and delivering to these large enterprises from India, we were able to leverage that experience um, and and wherewithal to sort of do the same in in a mature market like the US. Uh, but also a lot of learnings along the way, uh, and we continue to sort of learn and evolve uh, as we as we drive the the biggest. Uh, sort of excitement for us, um, and and you know, Mongeet, you know this uh, at the board uh, discussions as well. Is you know when we were looking at uh, our early uh, TAM, uh, we were looking at four hundred accounts, and we said, hey, how many of these four hundred accounts can we capture? Um, mm-hmm. When uh, we opened that up to the US, and really, when I'm saying US, it's it's truly just you know uh, the the US alone, uh, and uh, you know we we started with a with a eleven thousand account uh, list this was a named account list of 11000 accounts and said hey this is the tam that we are going after uh, where we believe that we have a fighting chance to be a market leader um and so just the sort of size of the market is dramatically larger and uh, uh, the exciting piece is i think as we talk to more and more customers uh, it's the same sort of a muscle memory of talking to some of the early customers in the first first 3 years that's working in
0: in the us market too so talking about extending to the us market uh, which you know a lot of SaaS company. I would say every SaaS company in, in that's building from India for the world is focused on that U.S. market. What would you recommend? Uh, is the right sort of time for for them, for example, transitioning from doing a product market fit in India initially and then looking looking outwards, whether it's the U.S., Europe, or or another part of the world? And the corollary to that is the team aspect, right? So. When is the right time to start putting boots on the ground? Let's say in a in a market like US.
1: Yeah, I'll answer this question slightly differently. I think uh, and and maybe uh, hopefully useful to the folks listening as well uh, because we think about this a lot. Which is sort of if we could redo Pando's journey or sort of in retrospect, what what are our learnings, if you will, and um, in in the context of the two questions that you asked, one around talent and the other around uh, um, around uh, you know the timing of uh, uh, looking at your largest market. Uh, I think, you know, any founder that uh, you ask, I think the first big learning in SaaS is, you know, go to your largest market as soon as you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, my learning has actually been a little sooner than you can. Uh, and uh, the, the only reason is, I think, um, you know, uh, there is... When one has momentum, uh, in the and especially with a small base, right, a million dollar ARR company, uh, that's sort of closing these large logos. You feel like you know you're conquering the world. You're doing a lot of great things, but really you're a million dollar ARR company. Uh, and so, uh, the it, it you know the momentum sort of gives you a little bit of this like busyness, if you will, uh, and you sort of get sucked into doing more of that. Uh, without sort of thinking about, or even if you are thinking, you're not able to sort of extricate yourself. Um, you know, the the real picture is that there are only 400 accounts that you can you can really sell into in that early time. It's important that uh, you know. I looking back, the one thing that I will not not do uh, is uh, you know uh, start in India and then and then scale uh, to to the US, right? Because it gave us a tremendous amount of experience in being able to sort of build that muscle uh, of mm-hmm. of uh, market fate of of sales and delivery um and even today you know when we talk to customers it's a massive Massive uh, advantage over competition, even American established incumbent, Gartner top right quadrant competition, to be able to say, you know, uh, I'll, you know, you should talk to our head of delivery and professional services, and you'd understand the breadth of what we can do for you. Um, and customers say we pick you because of your ability to deliver, uh, and so on. And I don't think that would have been possible without that. But you know, I, I think we took too long to sort of go to the to the U.S. Today, the focus is 100% the U.S. Um, and so uh, you know if there are uh, other markets that we're doing it, we're doing it opportunistically, but really hundred uh, percent of our investment capital allocation is is going towards the US. So a short answer as soon as as you can, if not sooner than you can, um, because we go through our own learnings and our own own journeys. and um, I think the uh, that, that's that's sort of the first part of the question. The second part of the question is uh, on talent. Uh, and I think it's a it's a bit of a nuanced beast um uh i think saas talent in india uh is is uh, phenomenal and maybe this is true for most markets our, my exposure uh, in terms of yeah, 70 75% of our team is is in india and so uh saas talent in india is phenomenal in certain functions uh, up and coming in other functions and non existent in others um and uh back when we started pando uh, there was for, for a variety of maybe two or three reasons that I'll get into, uh, we were all drinking the Kool-Aid of the advantages of the Indian talent market, um, uh, especially as it relates to SaaS, um, that I think we did not, at least I did not uh, know the real picture of the true advantages and the true uh, limitations of what we were dealing with, right? Uh, and I think the reasons were a combination of two or three things. One, I'll put it on, on ourselves, our own inexperience um, and our own, you know, you know, inexperience in having built and scaled uh, a business of, of a certain size. Um, the second was really, I mean, just free capital, right? And so unlimited, and you know, we keep saying Pandora there's there's only one God, and that's the Fed interest rate. Uh, and you know, as a function of that uh, just just free capital and unlimited ability to sort of experiment and learn and not even learn your lessons just sort of keep experimenting and then the third is really the rhetoric around the market there was just uh, a lot of sort of conversation around the the India advantage without actually delving into exactly what the contours of that advantage actually is today we understand that advantage far more than we did like five years back Um, Mm -hmm. and there are fundamental advantages it's not just an arbitrage game if anything there are certain functions and certain pockets of uh, maybe around where you are sitting right now uh, where uh, you know the, the the talent market is more inflated in india uh, than it will be in certain parts of uh, of the valley uh, but and it's not just an arbitrage game i think it's a skill set game right and there are certain skill sets that you will be able to leverage dramatically better in India than what you'd be able to do in the US and there are certain skill sets that are just non-existent in India and we we'll, we're doing well we are taking our time to sort of build and groom that skill set over time uh, but we you know uh, uh, sometimes that doesn't match with the pace at which a venture backed business needs to be able to sort of you know iterate and grow um, and so, therefore i think this whole sort of figuring out for what function what uh, you know, uh, where, where do you you know just hire for attitude and allow that to sort of groom, and where do you need experience to be able to leverage and get that to deliver on the quarter? Uh, that whole sort of balancing act is something that um, I think I think we took some time to learn, uh, and so those are sort of the two big learnings. I think uh, you know where we are today, Monjeet. Um, um, uh, on on both of those is uh, you know hundred percent U.S. focus. Uh, I, you know, the founders are are, uh, spending 100% of their time in the US leadership is incentivized only on uh, North America growth, uh, etc. And in terms of talent, I think there is a fairly pragmatic view, um, which is evolving, of course, we're learning along the way, but a fairly pragmatic view of what the uh, advantage of by function and by seniority, by role, is uh, and how we'll be able to leverage the India advantage to grow globally. Um, but, you know, it, it's not, uh, you know, we're not drinking the Kool Aid on, on either of these, these buckets uh, anymore.
0: So let me double click on that though. Uh, so, so just give some specifics, if you might, on let's say just the f- functions okay. where India has an advantage versus India has limitations, for example.
1: Uh, I think, you know, broadly four buckets for a for an enterprise SaaS business, um, where frankly without, and, I, and I'm saying this very specifically, it's an enterprise software business as a service uh, and, and not as a software as a service business and not necessarily SMB SaaS and maybe, uh, you know, enterprise, but hardware or managed services might be different. But specifically for an enterprise SaaS business, I think there are four broad functional areas that if one fails all four will fail and the business will definitely fail all four need to the pillars need to sort of move together if you will uh, marketing and sales being one uh, you know uh, customer success uh, people call it professional services customer success implementation delivery whatever uh, being the second um, engineering uh, being the, the third and product management uh, sort of being the fourth right and uh, it's critical in this in this overall sort of equilibrium to sort of continue maintaining that all four are are uh, growing together um I think the uh the thing that uh the, the functions that India gets really, really well uh is uh engineering. Uh I think we do, we do very well. We there's phenomenal quality of talent. There is uh, you know, and and you know, people talk about sort of 10x engineers, 100 x engineers, uh, exponential engineers, et cetera, in the US. I think there are exponential engineers in India. Um, and I think, you know, what Uh, uh, you know, they they might uh, lack or might uh, not have an experience, they make up for in sheer just grit and hard work and ability to sort of, uh, you know, put the customer first and the ambition to sort of grow uh, really. So phenomenal sort of pool of talent on the engineering side. Um, I think the second bucket is uh, is interestingly uh, you know you know before, before that uh, the second bucket is is professional services. Uh, I think customer success, implementation, professional services, delivery, etc. Uh, fairly rich legacy of IT services in India, um, and just sort of translating that into the enterprise context. Uh, you know, in every and it's a nuanced sort of. I mean, IT services is basically uh, taking customer success, which is one function in uh, in uh, you know a SaaS business, and basically making a business. Out of it, a PNL out of it, uh, and so all the nuances of of that, and all the sub functions of that, and how that should operate. I think there are people who get really, really well, and sort of have dedicated their lives to. And there are playbooks that one can leverage uh, fairly quickly as well, right? So that's the second, third. Interestingly, um, sales and marketing, uh, I, I sort of split that into two: sales and dimension. Um, sales, I think, uh, or sales dimension and brand. Uh, sales, I think, India actually gets fairly well. But relative to uh, you know the way uh, the maturity of the playbooks, the repeatability of what one is able to do uh, in in North America, simply because they've been doing it for far longer and sort of fine tune that playbook over time, um, I think there is there is a gap. But what they uh, again you know what a a lot of um, Indian software sellers might not have in experience or leveraging playbooks, they make up. or ensure sort of, uh, you know, uh, hospitality, if you will, right? Uh, the ability to sort of put your customer first, truly yeah. listen uh, and deduce the problem statement and be able to then craft a solution to your problem with a product that you have built, I think is ultimately what, what enterprise software sales is. And you know people are able to sort of bring that to the fore fairly well. So I wouldn't say the gap is too wide on the, on the sales front. On the other hand, on the demand generation and the marketing front, uh, I think the gap is fairly wide. Um, uh, you know The combination of playbooks, available talent, Experienced talent that says, "Hey, I want to dedicate my the next 15 years of my life to be a phenomenal tier one sales development rep." Nobody in India says that. Everybody wants to be, you know, a, a seller and then a, a VP of sales and then a CEO and the, or a founder immediately. Uh, but you know, uh, which is great. But to take that founder's mindset and actually apply it to, you know, uh, being a early career uh, SDR. That- sort of evolves into being an enterprise-grade SDR. I think the depth of the talent pool and the playbooks available in North America, I think, are, are significant. Changing though, I think, um, you know, there is is the ability to sort of groom talent to sort of get there. Uh, Marketing, brand marketing, the ability to craft a narrative, the ability to sort of have that strategic narrative percolate into how you talk about product, about your value proposition, about product differentiation, etc. I think we have a far distance to cover. Um, I think that's probably the single function where uh, I feel like, you know, a a lot of Indian founders... Uh, that are building uh, large teams in India, uh, but focused on, you know, either Western Europe or North America uh, are, are uh, because of a dearth of talent, they're sort of taking it on themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're not great at it either. We're also figuring it, figuring it out as we go along uh, versus I think there's ready ready sort of talent available as well as playbooks available in the U.S. to do it. Uh, fourth and lastly, I think uh, product management um, I think the the uh, you know in the sort of continuum or the the sort of what should be a virtuous cycle between customer facing product management and engineering or internal facing product management uh, the second half I think Indian PMs are phenomenal at especially for the enterprise uh, I think the combination of functional experience enterprise facing product management experience and core PM chops right uh, in at the intersection of this when like for us, that means supply chain experience, enterprise product management experience, and then like core, you know, delivery and sort of whatever agile and and uh, whatever methods you use, the ability to deliver on that promise really, right? Um, and the combination of that, there are probably like 10 people in the country who can do, right? And so, uh, you know, therefore we're then having to borrow from like, consul- you know, supply chain consultants and groom them in product management or generic PMs and then groom them in supply chain, for example, right? And that takes a bit of sort of bandwidth and capital and time um, but that again is available in North America that that one can one can leverage. So that's sort of the stack rank across these four. The unfortunate thing in SaaS is this uh, is that unless you get all four right, the business will lag behind a little bit, right? And so you're having to sort of pull the, all four of it up to sort of drive it. I should say, and I, it would be a miss if I don't. What uh, w- there is, we are not um, an a cross border SaaS company by. Uh, you know, mistake of birth for the company, right? We're a cross-border SaaS company by choice. Um, Our investors are cross-border investors by choice. Oftentimes, like yourselves, uh, you know, with with large LP bases outside the country that sort of want to leverage the India advantage to be able to sort of serve serve, uh, North America and Western Europe. And the reason for that is really a combination of capital efficiency on one hand and deep skill set on the other. For three out of the four that I just spoke about, I said there is depth in this base and that depth is so real that there is no way, you know, I have an enterprise customer that you know about um, who, you know, basically told us, you know, top three reasons why they picked Pando for a, uh, you know, six digit uh, uh, contract uh, ARR multiple years, etc. And it's a fortune 100 company. And, you know, good product, whatever, whatever. And eventually the the third reason was, hey, I mean, the support person that you brought on to that call that we did, you know, two months back... He had more experience than my logistics leader in my company, and this guy was a support person who was, you know, would be the guy who'd pick up the phone or respond to chat messages if the user essentially responded to right. So the depth of functional experience that we we're able to bring to the table to serve enterprise customers when they as a SaaS vendor. Uh, is so consultative and uh, and productive that there is no way that forget the valley, but in Utah or in you know Chicago or in Austin or in Dallas or Houston, we would ever be able to replicate that advantage for North America. So you know, there's really there is nuance to the talent advantage. It is not. It's neither. You know, you ask uh, at least you, if you asked. A bunch of founders or uh, VCs in 2018, 19, it was all shiny and beautiful. Uh, and you know, if, if at the same time you ask folks that haven't been exposed, American executives, SaaS executives that haven't been exposed to the India advantage, it was all, all back office and you know, uh, uh, you know, back end work. Right? It's neither extreme. It's sort of it, it's functional and it's nuanced. Uh, and I think to be able to do justice to that advantage, we'll just have to understand that nuance more effectively.
0: No, that's very well articulated. Nathan, um you know, my hope though is uh, the one area where there is deficit, hopefully over time, as companies like Pando and others uh, continue to scale, some of that skill set is actually going to be, you know, uh, transferable uh, yeah. back to uh, back to India as well.. Uh, Transitioning a little bit, I want to go deeper on, let's say, the the product side. So, you know, often when there are companies that have a comprehensive suite, right, so in in Bando's case, for example, you know, warehouse management or, you know, TMS, transportation management, et cetera, um, you sort of lead with, you can often lead with the fact that you have that comprehensive, uh, you know, single pane of glass. Uh, which becomes the value proposition for for the enterprise customer, but from a GTM uh, you know standpoint, sales cycles may become uh, elongated, right? As you're yeah. trying to communicate the, uh, the 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 value proposition of the comprehensive solution, so it may actually be beneficial to go with a point solution in that particular case. Have you experimented with either one of those? And is there um, sort of a predictable playbook uh, that's working for Pando at this time? Yeah. Uh, So uh, there's a bunch
1: to unpack there. uh, But uh, let me sort of try to break that down into three sort of sub-questions, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, so that uh, I'm able to articulate it well. The first is, I think, uh, you know, there's the question of sales cycles uh, versus ACVs. Um, and uh, ACVs and sales cycles as a function of land and expand, or do you sort of land large versus land small and expand uh, eventually? Right. So um, that's the first bucket. Uh, and the second bucket, uh, I think, is uh, hey, you know, uh, is is from a engineering productivity or a capital invest capital allocation perspective, uh, should you go deep uh, with one you know niche vertical product, or should you sort of uh, build a suite? that uh, is, is quote unquote, comprehensive, but takes more capital to build. Uh, And therefore, at what stage is it the right stage to sort of have a suite versus have um, individual individual, uh, niche use case products? Um, uh, I think is the second question. And then the third uh, is, how does all of this sort of play into momentum both on the sales side as well as on on the product side? So let let me sort of answer those in in those three buckets. I think the first is, uh, I think we've experimented with this a lot, but the reality is that whether we like it or not, and most enterprise software sales folks or enterprise software CEOs uh, that we have spoken to, if not all, have told us that it's a linear uh, uh, relationship between ACV and sales cycle. Um, If you want a large deal, uh, and whatever large in your industry is, and in general, venture backed SaaS startup companies, whatever, is you know, you cross 100,000, you cross 200,000, you're considered sort of large, if you will, right? But of course, the larger it is, the larger, uh, you know, you, you subjectively uh, or relatively are. Uh, but the larger the deal size, the larger the sales cycle, um, and. Oftentimes, I think the reality is that the, the relative scale is not of relatively of the buying pattern of the customer. What I mean is if the customer is buying 100,000 versus, so there are two, two influences here, right? If the customer is buying $100,000 ARR deal versus a million dollar ARR deal versus a $10 million ARR deal, the signing authorities are different, the ROI expectations are different, the number of consensus-based decisions are different, et cetera, and therefore it takes a little longer, right? But the second aspect of this also is um, $100,000 deal versus a $200,000 deal, where the signing authority may be the same, the consensus uh, expectation might be the same. Uh, the, the, our, the, the startup or the team's ability to understand, navigate and be able to sell uh, is slightly different right and therefore i think it takes it, it takes us longer to sort of sell uh, uh, as well right so i think there is a linear relationship here um, our experience in this has been to maintain a minimum value threshold uh, and get a minimum viable product to that threshold right so uh, we made a decision to say that Whatever happens in the mid-market, we will not breach the $100,000 threshold. And whatever happens in the enterprise, we will not breach the $200,000 threshold. Right? And so mid-market for us is $300 million to uh, $3 billion in revenue, and enterprise is $3 billion to $10 billion. Strategic accounts is $10 billion plus in revenue. Uh, in the first two buckets of $300 million to $3 billion, whatever we sell, the whatever minimum product packaging that we package, we said $100,000 is the minimum that we're going to land in. Where, you know, we don't want to sort of breach that because then it becomes a manager-level decision. And I'm not able to then expand because the manager then can sign only up to $100,000. Uh, and then I have to go s- start a completely new sales cycle with this boss which i don't mm-hmm. want to do. so let me land at the lower end of the signing authority of the director and then work my way up to the higher end of the signing authority of the director which will get me to 350 dollars in ARR. same thing with the enterprise uh, there therefore right so we we have a land and expand story but that land and expand story you'll see our nrr is about 120 122% um the land and expand story is largely crafted around the minimum viable threshold of ARR that we won't breach and a minimum viable product value proposition that will meet that ROI expectation, essentially, right? So that's the first uh, part of the question. The second part of this is really, I think, uh, as we think about the, um, uh, the... uh, uh, product investment vis a vis what we should do uh, for the enterprise we've actually had a bit of learning here right in india um and uh, i have a friend also a fellow entrepreneur his name is kashyap diora uh, he runs a company called hypertrack many years back uh, you know he uh, quoted i mean i, I he, he told me that american companies are like sequoia trees and uh, indian companies are like banyan trees and the reason being uh, you know, in and it's really a function of TAM. If you pick a narrow use case and you can go super deep, you're able to sort of build a fairly large company in the U.S. Versus if you have uh, you know, uh, only funded accounts that you're going after in India, you're having to build a suite and sort of capture uh, the same the same uh TAM in terms of ARR. I actually think there is a a second angle or an influence on this, which is that I think in a low interest rate um. um easier spend environment that we found ourselves in for the last eight to 10 years, um, I think companies, buyers uh, were buying software uh, for every niche use case they could independently without necessarily rationalizing the overall process and the technology for the overall process. And so we saw this sprouting uh, of many very niche use case products uh, that would solve one particular use case really well and be able to solve that across multiple enterprises without necessarily a view for the entire entire process. I think from the enterprise buyer's perspective, that has changed definitively. Right? Um, we see Pando as having an advantage in the buying process, although we lead with one product, the fact that we take into account the entire procure to pay or order to cash sort of life cycle and say, hey, this particular process, we cover everything, but I can't and I won't sell you the whole thing. I right. And you don't want the whole thing because you have individual products here and then You don't want to rip and replace everything. Here is this one piece that I know is the biggest pain point today. You, are, you have a vendor, an existing budget, you don't have to create a budget, let me replace that, I'll get you up and running in a quarter and I'll deliver $10 million in savings by the start of the second quarter is a huge value proposition. But somebody else could also say it. the reason we win is because we have the suite that covers the entire breadth. right? And so I think there is... There is both a, a TAM angle to this, as well as a buying pattern angle to this, um, but it does take more capital and more bandwidth to be able to build that suite earlier. And so uh, the way I sort of think about it in the enterprise is there are really only three workflows, procure to pay, order to cash, and hire to retire. Right, And any product that you build is uh, you know a sub-function of these three big workflows. Uh, and so unless you take one big category in our context, that is supply chain and freight, in somebody else's context, it could be, horizontal hire-to-retire process, like a Darwin box is doing, saying we are all involved for uh, hire-to-retire. You you will have to build a suite earlier than you did have to in the last 10 years um, or think about adjacent product categories earlier than you had to think in the last 10 years because the buying pattern is sort of yielding to that today.
0: Plus, I think, I mean, one of the, the phrases I like using is, you know, startups... Um, or vendors being trusted concierge to the enterprise customer, right? So their current pain point may be X, but as you said, over time, chances are they're gonna have adjacencies. And to the extent that you've built that trust with that enterprise customer, they'd much rather work with you uh, than again, go and find another point solution, right? And within that particular particular domain. Yeah, and
1: your sales, cost of sales is also drastically lower. Um, you know the whole trust deficit is is especially as a startup, right? I mean, Pando. The, when we went to the US, you know, from uh, India where everybody seemed to know who Pando was, and you know, we were saying no to customers when we went to the US. You know, you picked up the phone and you said, "Hey, I'm calling from Pando." No, no, people are calling from where? Uh, and there was no brand uh, history. There was no uh, foundation of existing customers. Uh, it was largely founder led sales two two, two two and a half years back. Um, you know, where if you land that first logo. Uh, you're able to sort of prove your value. Uh, the ability to then expand becomes becomes drastic, um, and we have a, a customer today, uh, and you know it's it's now public information. Danaher, uh, who's been with us, uh, was our first customer in the US, uh, where frankly we uh, you know we borrowed the brand of a NSI TCS uh, to sort of leverage. Uh, them to be able to land the logo because there's no way that they would have trusted a Fortune 100 company would have trusted Pando uh, for a mission critical process where if we are down, you know, their revenue will not be met for the for the quarter. Um, but over the course of the last two years when we've delivered this, they've, they've grown in size. Uh, one of their divisions has become a listed business by itself. We have grown with them and we've held up our end of the bargain. Uh, and now uh, for the new listed entity, uh, they're competing with... Uh, uh, you know, sorry, they're they're uh, implementing a new ERP system with Oracle, and they've decided that you know they've compared Pando to Oracle supply chain uh, suite and decided to implement Pando over Oracle. Although they, you know, it comes as an extension of their existing ERP. So it was a new budget that they had to allocate for Pando, vis-a-vis what they were doing earlier. And our sales cost of sales there was near nil um, because we just held up our end of the bargain over the course of the last two years, and we we're able to sort of grow in size
0: with them. Awesome. Well, talking about branding, which is one of the things you <clears throat> you talked about, I I meant to ask you this question earlier. Where did the name Pando come from? Because sure. it doesn't it doesn't equate to supply chain in any way, at least for for most folks. So, yeah, what is what is Pando all about? Yeah,
1: um, Pando is actually a. a... I'll give you the actual answer and then a couple of funny stories. But uh, uh, you know, Pando is a is a forest in northern Utah uh, in the US. Uh, it's about nine hundred odd acres of uh, forest land. They call it the Quaking Aspen. Uh, so lots of cultural references around the Quakers and the Aspen Institute and all of that. Part of the same genus uh, uh, pool as as other aspen trees uh, as well. Uh, nothing very special about the forest till the year I think uh, uh, seventy eight or 87, I don't remember, uh, but uh, you know, in, in the uh, late 90s, when a researcher from the University of Utah uh, figured out that that entire 900 acres was actually a single tree. Uh, it was not what looked like sort of you know individual trees or forest from the outside, uh, was actually a single tree across 900 acres. It was like uh, an upside down banyan tree um, where in a banyan you sort of have the roots coming down from the uh, from the branches and looking like trunks. Here you had a common root base, a network of roots that was sort of sustaining 900 acres uh, of, of forest land and then sort of shoots coming out at different spots. And so it could actually be traced back to a single uh, trunk at some point in in, the, in history. Um, and it is till date the heaviest living organism uh, in, in the world. And sort of uh, that entire root base sustaining all of those seemingly siloed, seemingly standalone trees was um, an interesting metaphor to supply chain for us because um, you know, it, it is a multi-party, mutually uh, a coexistent sort of game where if a supplier defaults, uh, you're in jeopardy. If you don't supply well, your customer is in jeopardy. If your carrier of rate forwarder goes bust, or decides to um, you know go on strike, then you know you are in jeopardy and you know de- products don't get delivered. Uh, you know oil prices have an impact on you know uh, commodity availability and and fluctuation. Uh, China plus one geopolitics. The just global supply chain is such a multi-party game. Uh, but technology is sort of sustains. It was really uh, you know siloed and and really uh, you know, archaic. And so we wanted to sort of build this network root base, if you will, that would sustain these seemingly unrelated but mutually dependent sort of parties uh, in supply chain. Uh, it was also a two syllable word, easy to pronounce, and we found the domain name for cheap, uh, but
0: uh, that's, that's the story for the name. Awesome. All right, so fi- final sort of couple of things. We can keep talking for hours. Um... So so one thing I absolutely love about you and uh, Abhijit and, and the team is sort of constant experimentation of sorts. It's something you alluded to earlier in the conversation. So I want to talk um, uh, about a couple of them uh, where I think the other entrepreneurs could also leverage and learn from. Uh, so one, I can't remember what it was called, where you were doing sort of joint sessions with, I think it was McKinsey and um, and, and a university and so, talk about something like that. And the other, I think, which is more recent, is tapping into, let's say, interns uh, or or recent sort of college grads or maybe folks that are who are, who are still in college as uh, enhanced sort of Pando teams, if you will. Uh, just talk about that, and and you know, um, have these experiments work, not work. How do you keep coming up with sort of new things to uh, to try?
1: Sure. Um, So, uh, you know, I'll I'll talk about those two specific examples and then also sort of a framework that we have, we are evolving around around, uh, experimentation. Um, uh, So the first one that you spoke about was uh, uh, an initiative that we call Crossroads. Um, Crossroads is essentially a community play uh, where, uh, you know, when we entered uh, North America and now again, as we sort of look at uh, newer verticals within uh, uh, within the U.S. market, uh, where we don't have a significant brand credibility, um, and these are large enterprise accounts, and so we, the more traditional way to sort of do this would have been to sort of go after early adopters, uh, which are smaller enterprises or smaller businesses, and then go to mid market and then to enterprise. We decided to keep our uh, segmentation and category focus uh, sort of constant as we went to the U.S., and so we had we were going after these large large enterprises. Uh, where you had a great product uh, you were um, you know you were solving the problem that they had they had a budget but eventually they had to take you to the boss to sign a check and when they were comparing you against two others who might not have a great as great a product the team that's actually using it might not necessarily feel like the other two solutions are are uh, as effective uh, in in uh, solving the problem the team might feel more connected uh, and confident that your team will be able to deliver that product uh, better than anybody else. But ultimately, the decision maker looks at a comparative table and then decides, hey, listen, I know Oracle, I know SAP, I know Blue Yonder. Uh, what is this pa- pan? How do you spell this? Sorry, how do you pronounce this? Sorry, I've never heard of these guys. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's the classic, uh, if I buy from IBM, I'm not going to get fired sort of syndrome. Um, and of course, you know, uh, there is people have evolved from there and uh, technology awareness is more, et cetera. But the, the risk perception is, is still serious uh, in, uh, and it's constant. It's not just a new market entry problem. Uh, as a SaaS business, you're sort of constantly also entering new categories or segments of the market where, you know, if you, we, we might, we had a very strong customer base, 30, 40 customers in FMCG, but pharma, we had no customer base. And so we'd go to this large enterprise pharma business and they'd say, phenomenal, but all the logos you have are, you know, and this is PNG and Johnson and & Johnson and Nestle, but they'd still say, hey, but these are all FMCG companies. What about, what about, uh, you know, Pfizer and Johnson and & Johnson and somebody else? Um, And so, uh, you know, there was that trust deficit that we have to constantly sort of overcome. And one of the ways that the team uh, uh, thought would be interesting for us to sort of overcome that trust deficit would be to sort of uh, the idea of borrowing brands or or sort of riding the coattails of bigger brands, right? And so uh, as part of a larger sort of exercise, what we actually did was we started, um, uh, you know, basically partnering with... uh, one initially, which was Tata Consultancy Services, and then now two, Accenture and TCS. Um, uh, uh, you know, SI's where we could bring them into our deals, uh, or they would bring us into their deals to be able to sort of leverage the credibility that we could talk mm-hmm. about. Number one, but two, uh, as part of the same broad sort of borrowing brands uh, idea, we essentially said, hey, if I have a deal that's in the pipeline. Uh, Can I invite senior executives from, uh, you know, these companies not to pitch to them, but really invite them for these small, intimate sort of roundtable sessions uh, with other brands that they might respect? They don't even know us, but other brands that they might respect and their peers in the ecosystem as well uh, to be able to then sort of, uh, you know, leverage those brands to sort of uh, establish Pando's credibility. And so uh, along with McKinsey and MIT, uh, we did a bunch of sessions um, all across uh, North America. We continue to do them both virtually and and, uh, in person uh, today. uh, to essentially uh, leverage those brands to be able to establish our credibility and accelerate our conversion uh, cycles, right? So that was the first experiment. The second one is a more recent experiment. About a year back, uh, we we started uh, maybe not even a year, about six seven months back, we started a program called Prodigy, uh, and Pando Prodigy is essentially the idea that uh, you know we wanted to um so we spoke about demand generation being one of those functions where enterprise demgen is still something that the indian talent base is figuring out i don't think we've figured it out yet um, and so we realized that there were uh, uh, you know we had to build this talent base we had the option of either sort of going to the us and hiring a demgen uh, team or being able to sort of you know build and groom the talent base from india to be able to support the north america sales uh, and delivery engine Um, And so what we actually did was pick the two functions where the most amount of hiring was expected, which was customer success and delivery number one and demand generation number two. These two teams seem to be growing at the fastest pace. And there was also some degree of linearity. Um, uh, Demand gen is understandable. Delivery is also understandable. If you add one SDR, you can expect four more uh you know uh, marketing qualified opportunities in the funnel in the next week whenever they're fully ramped up let's say three months to ramp up uh one sdr you add you'll be able to add four more marketing qualified opportunities for that month right um and so there's some degree of linearity to the capacity growth and therefore the pipeline growth uh in the outbound uh, uh demand generation team same thing for delivery as well we had sort of crunched down implementation times to uh three months but uh you know that if I add one account manager, I knew that I could take three to four more accounts live in that in that time. Um, and so we capped off the. Uh, we told ourselves that we would uh, sort of cap off the total number of uh, uh, you know uh, customer success uh, uh, capital allocation to X. And so anything that crosses that X, uh, you know, I'm not. We're not going to allocate more capital to. We'll have to leverage partners to be able to do. Uh, same thing on this side on on uh, demand generation, we sort of capped off the total capital allocation there as well. So we had to work with a finite amount of capital to be able to sort of accelerate our demand and therefore, uh, you know, accelerate conversions and, you know, as more accounts came in, implement more. So we needed more people to sort of do that. Um, mm-hmm. And we realized that, uh, you know, we couldn't do that in a high uh, uh, cost environment like the US, we had to do it uh, in India, but in India, in turn, you know, the talent was not readily available for demand generation, Uh, it had to be built. So that was sort of the context around which uh, this experiment came up. Pando Prodigy is essentially a program where we go to, um, you know, uh, uh, tier one, tier two and tier three colleges. Uh, across uh, the country uh, and uh, uh, look at uh, uh, computer science graduates in their fourth year of engineering um, and uh, interview uh, the best of the lot uh, who both have an academic, uh, who are academically uh, sort of top performing, but also uh, have a passion for uh, communication, good language, etc. Um, and are excited about sort of joining an early stage high growth uh, startup. Uh, and they go through a one full year uh, internship in their fourth year. So they're still studying in their fourth year uh, of engineering, but they work with us, uh, you know, for, for an entire year. At the end of that year, uh, they get placed in different functions within Pando. Um, it gives them uh, a, a fairly uh, extensive view of what building a, a global SaaS business from India looks like. Uh, they love it. Uh, they love the energy. It uh, You know, the, the guy who runs it is a phenomenal leader who sort of has the bent for sort of grooming and coaching and, and leading uh, as well, apart from being a phenomenal demand generation uh, leader. Um, but two, it also gives us the ability to sort of experiment with, uh, you know, multiple channels, Uh, To be able to today, for example, a lot of crossroads, uh, which is the events channel for demand generation in the US is run by a set of prodigies in India. Um, And so we have a dedicated team of prodigies that are essentially doing event, which is field marketing in the US, but from India. Um, And if you look at our current funnel, 40% of our, our, you know, current pipeline is from uh, crossroads uh, or from our uh, field marketing events. And uh, that is, uh, you know, the cost base of that cost per lead is obscenely low. Um, because of of our ability to sort of leverage uh, this base, right? So those are sort of uh, the two experiments that you were talking about. I should say that, uh, you know, I've been accused of by my team experimenting too much um, and both experimenting too much and also sort of cutting experiments too soon without giving them the time to sort of uh, flourish uh, or sort of get to results, really. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, I think that criticism is valid. Uh, I think in uh, founders, or and I shouldn't say founders. I both Abhijit and I. I think uh, uh, by nature are folks that are sort of constantly thinking about, uh, you know, how can I do this differently? How can I do that differently? What if we try this? What if we try that? Etc. And sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. Uh, and thankfully, we have a, a leadership team that sort of keeps us in check uh, and sort of you know calls us out when uh, when we get a little overboard. But over time, what we have done is sort of built a framework around experimentation and that's really a capital allocation framework right we sort of think about uh we thought long and hard about uh what are the kind of experiments that we run and there are broadly just two categories of exper- experiments right there are experiments that we run for opera- operational efficiency right stuff like uh the prodigy program is not a uh, we're doing it for operational efficiency. We're doing it because we need better performance and better productivity at the same time, right? And so the the ability to sort of deliver a dime, uh, deliver pipeline for a dime, we want to improve that and how do we do that with a larger uh, capacity base is what we're doing it for uh, on the other hand uh, you know north america or within we recently sort of split this into enterprise and mid market we said hey can we attack uh, pharma as well why don't we try retail why don't we uh, you know expand into adjacent categories uh, of industries mm-hmm. where the existing product might be a fit so a second category of uh, experiments that we run is tam experiments right where we're saying hey with the same product what new market segment can i essentially attack Right, so these are sort of the two big, big experiment types that we done. Um, what we generally now said is that we will give more time to results in the TAM side, but on the operational efficiency side, we will not give more than a quarter. Right, And so if something doesn't work for a quarter and it's an experiment for, to gain operational efficiency, we're going to cut it down. And that might mean we'll hire and then we might have to let go or we'll hire internally and we might have to get, give it back to the existing function. It might mean we allocate capital, but then we pull back that capital, whatever it is, but one quarter is all we have. But on the TAM side, we, I mean, uh, product market fit for a new subcategory might take a little longer. We don't have credibility, stuff like that. So we we'll sort of experiment for a little longer. Similarly, uh, the way we think about and communicate the experiment um, is is also clear. Uh, We have a, a format of a memo that we force ourselves to write uh, and send that memo out to the leadership team before we launch that experiment. And we've sort of gotten into a little more of a discipline because uh, you know earlier we used to sort of launch on a whim. Um, versus it allows us some time to sort of digest, think, structure, communicate, and then launch. It makes the experiment more well-rounded uh, and allows the team to sort of own it better as well. Third and lastly, I think. Um, you know, as we, as we think about the um, the reason why experiments fail, uh, we've generally, and, and this is not just experiments, I think the reason why anything fails in, in our business, uh, and, you know, this that's my sort of circle of influence, so I, I don't want to extend it beyond. And if, you know, there are folks that have more learnings, we are happy to learn, but we've learned that there are only four reasons why things fail, right? Uh, experiments fail. One is capacity, the other is capability, the other is culture. Uh, so capacity, meaning the number of people, Capability meaning whether they're able to do it or not, culture whether they are a fit. We've sort of structured our thinking around why experiments fail as well, uh, and therefore for each of those levers, how can we sort of solve for uh, uh, it as well, right? And so if uh, we believe that a particular experiment is not working, uh, you know, what lever should I tighten to be able to sort of deliver the outcome? Is something that uh, you know we we've structured our thinking around as well.
0: No, obviously, there's a. I mean, there's a lot of thought that has that has gone into these experiments. There's some, um, you know, evolution refinement that that's also happened in terms of, you know, thinking about the TAM and and the timeline to to let those experiments sort of come to come to fruition. Now, <clears throat> the final, I guess, um, final question that I'll ask, which I ask all my guests, is uh, what I call the uh, the nuggets of wisdom segment of this interview. So, mm-hmm. as an as an entrepreneur, you can put any sort of lens you want on this. You know, whether it's um, you know something that you would tell your younger self, or you know when you were starting, you and we were starting Pando, what would you do differently? But what are sort of two or three, uh, you know, again nuggets of wisdom, pieces of advice that you would give the entrepreneurs uh, that they should be focused on, whether you know it's at the onset of starting something or uh, perhaps where pando is now as you're trying to you know scale the business uh,
1: i think three things um one is uh, uh i think capacity, uh, uh, capital allocation cannot be outsourced um and yeah uh, it's it's a lesson that uh, i think we learned uh, after uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, well difficult experiences mm-hmm. uh there is always great advice around us. Uh, there is uh, leadership teams uh, that we put together that we can lean on, boards, investors that uh, that act as sounding boards, other founders that have their own experiences, etc. But ultimately, I think the founder's single job um, is is capital allocation, um, and capital allocation in terms of time, bandwidth, and dollars, but really, you know, how you spend every minute of the day every dollar that you have uh, and what percentage goes towards what um, i think is is a decision that cannot be outsourced to anybody and uh, uh, we're saying this uh, and I, at least for pando i think the 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 culture of capital allocation and return on capital is something that we've tried to sort of build into our leadership teams into our functions uh, you know effectively uh, and we continue to sort of reinforce that over time, uh, but that was not always the case. I I would have uh, done it much earlier. Number one, number two, uh, I think the yeah, it's 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 a long journey, uh, and uh, you know, founders being founders, I think we sort of get very very obsessive. Um, and very almost insular uh, in, in sort of having blinkers on and, uh, you know, spending 200% of our energy time and, and bandwidth uh, on uh, the business. And that's the only way to sort of nurture something and get it to to uh, what you want it to be. Um, but I think thinking about life as uh, sort of sources of energy and, uh, and uh, investments of energy... Um, a, a, or expenses of energy, I think are are important, and so whatever that is for one, uh, for me, uh, it's been a combination of my family, uh, coaching, leadership coaching, um, and and meditation. Uh, for others, it could be sport, it could be I don't know, whatever, just doing things for fun, meeting other founders, whatever it is. But not talking shop, uh, and really just sort of uh, you know drawing energy uh, from things that that you do. I think are is is critical and uh, uh, i think you know uh, the you, you can't sort of stress on that enough especially in the length and sort of the volatility of the journey that uh, that we are on um and three i think uh, uh i think you are a you you and your outcome are a function of the people that you surround yourself with i think uh, uh mm-hmm. the uh, we've been wildly fortunate to have the kind of investors, the kind of leadership, uh, and uh, the team at Pando that uh, we've put together. Uh, I think the it, it's not just about the it is not just about the quality of the of the talent or the quality of the skill set. It's also about sort of the resilience and the attitude that uh, people bring to the table. I think there is. Uh, you know, it is it is a high volatility environment um, and the market is that you are in and the path that you, we've chosen is high volatility. But the beta uh, of whether you have to be as highly volatile or not and, and what that sort of uh, cushion factor between you and that market is is really the people that surround you uh and i and i mean at work so the p- team that you put together the co-founder uh founders that you build with the investors that come on board and the board that you build uh i think is a, is a big part of uh of what we become uh both as an outcome and uh uh you know as individuals so uh i think that's the that's the third
0: well I can't I can't speak for the other uh, investors on the board but I can tell you honestly Nitin, that um you know Iron Pillar is blessed to have an entrepreneur um or entrepreneurs like you and Abhijit among our fold so um thank you thank you for for your time thank you for the uh, the sage advice thank you for being candid and and I have to say that you know you are one of the most self-aware and proactive um entrepreneurs that I've ever met and I've been doing this for a very long time and when I say proactive it's uh, both anticipating if things are not going especially if things are not going well and what adjustments and sometimes these are very difficult adjustments that have to be made and if there is a you know a a curveball or googly like you know COVID or 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 Silicon Valley Bank uh, situation that comes uh, you know comes into play you know how do you adjust how do you pivot if you need to as quickly as possible i think you've been a, a remarkable leader a remarkable entrepreneur again we are blessed to have you amongst uh, amongst us and uh, and with that i'll bring this to a, to a close thank you so much I, again yeah, i would
1: mean, be though if i don't say uh, and ah. i can definitely talk off the other investors as well i think all five investors that we have uh, especially iron pillar uh, i think the reason we are able to sort of in, in that, that third piece that I said about people, uh, I think you've been phenomenal partners too. Uh, as as we think about, uh, you know, Pando's journey, uh, and both that we have been through as well as what, uh, you know, is, is in store uh, for the business and the market that we're in. Um, I think, you know, having great people who are able to sort of, uh, you know, really uh, sort of if, if we are flying high, uh, hold us to reality, but uh, you know, in in times of difficulty, pull us up and really sort of sustain the energy. Uh, I think is is ultimately the 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 mark of uh, a great partnership. So we're fortunate to have you on the board and uh, excited to have you on this journey with
0: Pandu too. You are too kind, my friend. All right, well, that we'll bring this to a to a close. Thank you again, Nathan. This was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.